Well, over the next several weeks, what we're going to be doing is covering some of the questions that you and the congregation submitted. You'll remember that I asked for uh, sermon ideas, things that you've always wanted to hear a sermon on. And one of the topics that came up several times was that of the end times, uh, that of prophecy, uh, various things related to that. Now, because one-fourth of the Bible uh, deals with these events, we obviously can't cover everything, especially in one message. So we're going to come back next week and look a little deeper in some of the other events that are to come. But there's a passage in Daniel chapter 9 that's considered to be the backbone of prophecy. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 9, because in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, we find what is popularly called the 77s of Daniel. Now, if you look at the first part of Daniel chapter 9, what you'll find is that Daniel had been praying and trying to determine what the future looked like for his people, the Jews. Now, God showed Daniel through the scriptures that their time of captivity was coming to a close, and then what God did was reveal to him some additional events that would be coming, things that were very significant, obviously, for them and us today. Now, after that, God sent the angel Gabriel to show Daniel what would happen. And maybe you're sitting here this morning going, prophecy. I don't like prophecy. I don't like the end times. Do we really need to talk about this? Well, let me tell you something. If you're somebody who doesn't get excited about prophecy, this passage should still excite you. And I'll tell you why at two different levels. One is that it shows you why you can believe the Bible that you hold in your hand is indeed the Word of God. Now, in two weeks from today, we're actually going to be going into where did we get our Bible? Because people are often asking that. How do we know this is the Bible? How do we know it's, it's accurate? What about the contradictions? What about all the different versions? So uh, in a couple of Sundays on the church picnic day, we're going to be talking about where did we get our Bible? And what a passage like this tells you is why you can trust the scripture that you hold in your hand. The other thing that a passage like this shows us is why we can know that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. God said there was a very specific window when the Messiah would come. And what a passage like Daniel 9 shows us is either the Messiah has come and some people have missed him, or friends, he's never coming. He either has already come or he's not coming. And what we find in a passage like this today is that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, the promised Messiah. And you'll understand more as we go into this passage. In Galatians 4, 4, we're told, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. And as we look at this passage today, what we're going to do is at times go into a great deal of depth. Now, I know there's the, the risk that your eyes will glaze over and you'll kind of want to check out, but stay with me. And what you'll understand is, is uh, the precision of this prophecy. This isn't one of those vague prophecies where I can just tell you, oh, there's going to be a plane crash next year. This is something that God revealed 570 years before it happened. And he revealed the very day, the very day, as you'll see, that the promised Messiah would come almost 600 years before it happened. As I show you the various slides that are going to be up here, I don't want you to feel like you have to fervently try to copy down notes. These will be on our website under the sermon area, as they always are. So these slides will be there for you to review, and uh, you can download those at your own leisure later. As we look at Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, tell us this. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, 
to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes it desolate. Now you'll recall that Daniel was trying to understand what was going to happen to the Jews. So as we read this, and you see in verse 24, your people, God is talking about the Jews. And the holy city refers to Jerusalem. And what God says is that 70 weeks have been decreed. Now in order to understand what this prophecy is talking about, we first have to establish what the word week means. It's the Hebrew word shavayim, which means seven. Now, here is an uh, actual uh, part of the passage that you see in Daniel chapter 10, verse 2. Now, Hebrew, you read right to left, not the way that we read English. And so when you look at the passage, what it literally says in the Hebrew text is morning three weeks, days. We translated Daniel had been mourning for three weeks. Now, the reason I'm showing you this is because when you see that word shavayim, that seven-day uh, week, it can be used in, in the scripture to refer to different sevens. If you look in the book of Daniel, this word is found eight times. Six times are here in chapter 9, two more times are in chapter 10. Now, the two times that it's used in uh, Daniel chapter 9, well, actually here, what we find is it refers to a seven-day week as we typically think of it. As you look at this slide, you see that last word is yom. You hear about yom kippur, the day of atonement. So what that's saying is literally weeks of days. So what we know there is when we see the word weeks, it's referring to the way we think of it, seven days. But in other places in Daniel, it's not referring to a seven-day period. Like here in Daniel 9.24, what we see is that it is... It is uh, said to be Shavayim weeks, followed by a Hebrew word that denotes a number. It's 70 here in verse 24, or it's 7 and 62 in verse 25. So what Daniel 9.24 literally says is Shavayim, Shavayim, seven seventies, he is decreed. Now it's not seven days of weeks, Yom is not there. And again, some of you are going, I'm lost already. What I want you to understand is why when we see weeks, and we're talking about the 77s of Daniel, we're not talking about a week, but we know it's a period of seven. Now, specifically, what is this seven? Now, he's not speaking of seven days. What he's talking about here is a seven-year period. And we're going to see in a minute the last 77 is the tribulation period. And that is a period that lasts seven years. Now, how do we know it is seven years? I've told you why we know when it's days. Well, as you look in the scriptures, the seven seventies are referred to as a time, times, and half a time. You see that in Daniel 7, Daniel 12, 7, Revelation 12, 14. Now, scripture, you always use to interpret scripture. So when it's talking about this period of a time, times, and half a time, 
It's equated with 1,260 days there in Revelation 11:3 and 12:6, which is equated with 42 months in Revelation 11:2 and 13:5. So you see, Scripture is telling us the sevens we are dealing with here are a seven-year period. Now you'll notice I call it a 360-day prophetic year. We are based upon a Gregorian calendar that has 365 days in a year, but the Jewish calendar used 360. So when we're going through the passage here and we're dealing with the time period here, uh, what we, we know the specifics that we're dealing with. Now, as we're talking about the number of days here in this glaze factor, I'm reminded of what Chuck Swindoll once said. He said, give a preacher five minutes and he can confuse anybody. <laughs> and I think I've probably got most of you confused already. You're thinking we're only five minutes in and I'm already lost. Now, as we look at these details, I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. And what is the forest? What is the purpose of this passage? What is the thing that God wanted us to know? What he tells us here in verse 24 is there are six things as to why these 77s are going to take place. The first three focus on dealing with sin. He uses three different words to deal with sin here. He says there to finish the transgression. Then he says to make an end of sin. And finally, to make atonement for iniquity. You see, the whole purpose in revealing the coming of the Messiah was God's plan as to how sin would be dealt with, what the payment would be, and how we who were far from God because of our rebellion would be brought near to God. That is the whole purpose of this prophecy. So if you get lost in the details, don't forget that what it's telling us is why the Messiah would come, which would be to go to the cross to pay the penalty of sin and death that we owed. And what we're told here is 570 years before it happened, God said the exact date that it would occur. The second set of things mentioned is to bring in an everlasting righteousness, it says, and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. And what these are pointing to is the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom that is coming. We'll get to that near the end of this message and go into it in depth next week. What verse 25 tells us is, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that's Jesus, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And so what it's telling us is there will be seven times seven, that's 49 years, then there will be 62 times 7, which is 434 years. So we're given the timeline as to how things are happening. Now, what we need to know is when does the prophetic clock start? When do you hit the countdown on the stopwatch? And what we're told here is that it would start ticking from the time of the issuance of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, as you look through the scriptures, what you find is there are actually three decrees that were issued that could possibly, possibly be in view. And so we have to figure out which one of these started the countdown. One of those is found in Ezra chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3, where King Cyrus said the Jews could return to their homeland and begin rebuilding the temple. There's another one in Ezra chapter 7 where King Artaxerxes said the same thing. But it wasn't until 445 B.C. when Artaxerxes Longimus issued the decree that is found in Nehemiah chapter 2, and verses 1 through 8. Now notice the decree said not just that Jerusalem, the temple would be rebuilt, not just that the Jews would return from captivity to their, their capital, to their land, 
But it says that it would be involving more than just the rebuilding of the temple. Those other decrees allowed that, but this said that the infrastructure, the plaza, the moat, the other parts of the city would be rebuilt as well. And so as you read the book of Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 6.15, we're told that the walls of Jerusalem were completed in 52 days, a miraculous reconstruction. But the rest of the city continued, as you know, rebuilding the infrastructure, rebuilding the homes, repopulating the cities as you read the book of Nehemiah. But what we can determine is this is the decree that is in view. Now, we know that this decree was issued in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. What that is on our calendar is March 5th, 444 BC. So that's when the clock began, and then we have the period of time with the 49 years, then the 434 years. Are you with me so far? How things are are playing out here. Now, as we talk about this, let me show you how precise this prophecy is. I told you that we're dealing with a 360-day Jewish calendar. So when you do all the math up there, you come up with 173,880 days. Now, we know when that period of time began. If you look at the Gregorian calendar, which is 365 days, and you do the math out, now 444 BC to AD 33, you see my little asterisk there, because when you look at a calendar uh, between 1 BC and 1 AD, uh, that doesn't count. So we're really dealing with 476 years. Again, stay with me. This will come together. What you find is when you add these two up, you see the 100, if you, if you take the 476 years and you multiply by 365 days using that timeline, you come up short on some days. You're only down to 173,740 days. Now, as we're trying to figure out the day of the coming of the Messiah, we have to figure out where are these missing days. And so what we do is we go in and we're missing 140 days. Now, as you know, we have something called leap years in our calendar. And so every four years, you have to account for this. And you end up with 119 days. But you see an asterisk there because centennial years are not leap years. So you have to take away, you, you take away five. But every 400th year is a leap year. Isn't this fun? People who are much smarter than me help me with all this. There are great scholars who have spent their life doing this. Uh, So as we add all this up, what we find is we found 115 days. So we're still missing 25 days. Now, we know that the decree was issued on March 5th. So 25 days later would be March 30th. And as we look at our calendar, we find March 30th, 33 A.D., would be when the Messiah would come. Do you know what happened on March 30th, 33 AD? Palm Sunday. What we celebrate as you look at the scriptures, as they've gone back and looked at the Passover and the historical records of when Jesus was here and on, they find on March 30th, 33 AD, it was Palm Sunday. You look at Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19. It speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ on that day. You recall as Jesus was entering Jerusalem, the crowds were shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now the word Hosanna, we sing that. And what you may not know is that is actually a prayer. If you look at the Psalm of Ascents where this is found, Hosanna literally is interpreted, save now. 
They were praying, Lord, save us now. And what we do is we sing it as a fulfilled praise. Hosanna, God saved us. It's a song of praise. Thank you for your gift of salvation. So as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem in advance of the Passover, the people were crying out, Hosanna, the Messiah, save us. And you recall the religious leaders were upset and were saying, stop the people from saying this. This is blasphemy. And Jesus said, if they don't cry out, the stones themselves will cry out. What Jesus said in Luke 19, 42 through 44, it says Jesus wept at that time. And he said in Luke 19, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes for the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus is, is speaking of what would happen to Jerusalem. In 70 AD, just a few years later, the Romans would come in and they would level the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus said, why? Because you missed it. You missed the day of your visitation. Now we're thinking, how in the world would anybody know? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders were those who studied prophecy. They were those who knew what we know today. They could have looked back and said, this is what is coming. In Zechariah 9.9, we're told, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus fulfilled that as he rode into Jerusalem on that unbroken colt, as you'll recall. And Jesus said, you missed it. Through my prophet Daniel, I revealed to you when I would come. And yet you refused to see the day. As we know from Bible and the history, a few days after these people were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were shouting, crucify. Daniel 9.26 said the Messiah would be cut off. The Messiah would be crucified. It says, then after the 62 weeks, so we see the timeline, it's saying when this day comes, after that, the Messiah will be cut off. And Jesus was crucified on Nisan 14, AD 33, or Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD on our calendar. Jesus was rejected and cut off just as the prophecy predicted. And I want to remind you as you look at this, this is not some vague Prophecy where I say, yeah, next year some plane's going to crash. This spoke of all the specifics, all the details down to the very day. Which is why, friends, you can look at the Bible in your hand and you can know this is indeed the Word of God. Jesus proved it not just through this prophecy, but by the fact that three days after he was crucified, when he was buried in a tomb, we know from the scriptures as well as history that the tomb was empty. Jesus rose from the grave. He proved that he was indeed God, that he had conquered sin and death. He, he walked on the earth for 40 days, showing himself to more than 500 witnesses. And then he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, waiting for the time to return to the earth. The Jews rejected their promised Messiah. So what happened is the countdown clock has paused. 
at this point, after Jesus was crucified, we've entered into what theologians call the church age. The church age began in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. And the church age will end at an event that is called the rapture. The rapture, the word rapture is rapturo from Latin, which means to be caught up. It's out of 1 Thessalonians 4. We will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now you'll notice I've labeled this the pre-tribulational rapture. Now I know there are, there are possibly people here today that hold a different view. They say, well, the believers will go through the tribulation. But as you look at these various passages that I have listed here, and, and all of these are not exhaustive, but as you look at 1 Thessalonians 1.10, let me start with 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through 17, that speaks of this event called the rapture, if you've never heard of it. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died. It says, so that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Remember, he's ascended. He's at the right hand of God. And it tells us that he will come back. He will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, raptured, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now I said it's the pre-tribulational rapture. What will happen is there is a time of tribulation. Remember, there's a final seven sevens that have not occurred this one seven-year period yet to come. And this is what it says to us who are believers. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers us from this time of tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 tells us, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.10 tells us this, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, this final seven-year period that is to come is called the tribulation. Now, as you look at Daniel, it tells us more about this period of time. In verse 27, we're told that the final seven-year period, it says, he will make a firm covenant. He is the Antichrist, the satanic representative who will come to take control and be the ruler over the earth at this time. It says that he will make a covenant with the many, those are the people on the earth, for one week. Remember this final seven sevens. This is seven years, not days. But in the middle of the week, so that would be three and a half years into that period, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, if you look at Daniel 9.26, we're told who this he is. It says, and the people of the prince who is to come. This is not the prince of peace, Jesus Christ, but this is the satanic person, the people of the prince who is to come, will destroy the city, this is Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. 
Now, as we're dealing with Daniel, you have to understand there's what's called a dual fulfillment. There are things that had, a, uh, had an application in Daniel's day. Remember, he was in captivity. The people were there. The Jews would return to Jerusalem. Jesus came in and said, the city will be destroyed because you missed it. The Romans were the ones who came in and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, it is also looking forward to this final rebuilt temple that will be in Jerusalem. That is to come. But as you look at what we're told there, if you were here when we went through the book of Daniel, we recall that we saw these different visions that were given. In Daniel 2, there was this statue, and we saw the different nations that were revealed both in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Now, the last one that we saw there was the revived Roman Empire, who, and this is who Daniel is speaking of. When he says the prince of the people who is to come, he was speaking of those who would rise up out of Rome. And so we know that it was the Romans who would destroy the temple, and we know that in the future, coming out of this area that was controlled by Rome is where this future Antichrist will come. And so what we find here is that the Romans fulfilled the prophecy, and there was a person in Daniel's day, in Daniel chapter 8, you'll recall that we saw there was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was the, the ruler in place at the time. And the abomination of desolation that is to come, there was a precursor, an event that occurred that defiled the temple. Do you remember how Antiochus came in and he sacrificed a pig on the altar, an unclean animal on the altar in Jerusalem? And that defiled the temple. And that was called the abomination. The future abomination of desolation that is to come Remember the, the tribulation period, the rapture will have occurred. Imagine what this world will be like. If all of those who claim to be Christians were raptured out of here, it'd be billions. But even if a small percentage of them go, more than a quarter of the earth's population will go. Imagine the United States of America losing all the believers. This country will be crippled and weakened. Our military will be a shell. The systems will collapse. All the chaos that is going to happen. And so what will happen is the world is going to be in turmoil during this period of time. And there will arise a ruler who will bring about some type of order to the world. People will begin to follow him. This is the Antichrist. Well, at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation, he will go to the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. He will allow the Jews to regather to begin worshiping again on the temple mount. And as the temple is there, he will come in, we're told, at the three and a half year mark and demand to be worshipped as God. And this will be the future abomination of desolation that will take place. This is how Matthew 24, 15 and 21 describes it. Jesus said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, that's in the temple, let the reader understand for then there will be a great tribulation, such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And this is what is happening. Daniel 9.27 tells us that in the 70, as the 70th seven comes to a close with a complete destruction of the satanic representative. Now, in Daniel 9, we're not told specifically all the details of this, but other places in the scripture, other prophecy tells us what these events will be. Now, as I mentioned before, we're going to come back next week to deal with this in more detail. So don't get completely lost in this summary. But what happens, this is what Daniel reveals to us. The 70th seven is this much of the prophecy 
that we have been shown. So we know what has already happened, and we know what is to come is this final tribulation period. Now, after the tribulation, there will be the second coming of Christ. Now, you have to understand the second coming is different from the rapture. As you read about the rapture, it says Jesus did what? He came down partway in the clouds, and we who are believers are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and then we return to heaven. Do you notice that? He doesn't return physically to the earth at the rapture. But at the second coming of Christ, Jesus will return physically to the earth. You can read Zechariah chapter 14, and there you see where it says his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That is just outside of Jerusalem, right across from the Temple Mount. And there it says that that will be split in half and the people who are being pressed in war will be given a valley to flee out of the city. The Jews will be preserved even in that final battle. So the second coming of Christ will be when the armies of heaven return physically to the earth. And friends, those of us who were raptured as believers, we get to come back with Jesus. You will be a part of that army if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And so we will return physically to the earth at the second coming. And this is when the battle of Armageddon takes place. As you read the scriptures, it reveals that this battle will take place, it says, at Har Megiddo. Har is the Hebrew word for mountain. Megiddo, there is a city of Megiddo that overlooks a a broad, flat plain. I've stood there in Jerusalem. And so Har Megiddo is the mountain at Megiddo, and that is where the nations will gather for this final climactic battle. Now, you'll see in a moment there's an even more final, bigger climactic battle to come, but this one's going to be big. And so the battle of Armageddon, this takes place. Now, what I want you to notice is in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 3, what we're told is Satan is bound. Satan, remember, has been this world ruler, his representatives, and he had been ruling the earth at this time. But what God is going to do is seize him. An angel will throw him into what is called the abyss. He will be chained. And he will be bound, as you read Revelation 20, for a thousand years. This is what is called the millennium. Again, we get these words from Latin. Millennium means a thousand. If you read there in Revelation 20, it is actually, uh, the Greek word is kylia, which means a thousand. But it tells you seven different times, this period of time will last for a thousand years. Now, we're going to cover this more in depth next week, but let me just give you a taste of what happens. Remember, we who were physically in heaven return to the earth. Now, there's something called the New Jerusalem. It's this heavenly city, we'll talk about that next week, that is hovering. So we who were raptured believers have gone to heaven, have received our new permanent resurrection bodies. We will be coming and going from the new Jerusalem to earth. Last Sunday, we talked about the rewards we as Christians are given during the eternal kingdom. This is part of the reward. We will be ruling with Christ. Jesus will be physically seated on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. The Messiah will physically be present in Jerusalem. People will see him. The nations will be coming before the Messiah. And during this thousand-year period, remember the tribulation, many will die during that time. All the Christians were raptured at the beginning of the, thousand, at the, beginning of the tribulation, but the Bibles are not raptured. There will be people... If the rapture were to happen this moment at Wayside Chapel, I'm sorry to say this, but I believe there would be people left sitting in the pews around. 
There will be pastors in some places that will be standing in the pulpit going, where'd my congregation go? Because they were not truly believers in Jesus Christ. They had information, but they never had transformation where they received Jesus to be the Lord of their life. So there will be people who will be left behind who know the truth, who will come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation. In fact, the scriptures say that there will be many, many who will come to faith in Christ. Now, it'll be a terrible, terrible time. Many of those will be suffering and martyred. The martyrs that will be piling up during that time are enormous. But at the end of the tribulation, when the battle of Armageddon takes place, all of the unbelievers will be judged and wiped out. Satan will be thrown into the abyss. These non-believers will be wiped out. But those who were surviving Christians will go into the millennium physically. Are you with me? We have two things happening. We have those of us who are resurrected in our permanent bodies. You have others just like we are today that physically go into the millennium. Guess what? For a thousand years, they are marrying and having children, and those children are having children, and those children are having children. So for a thousand years, people are being born on the earth. Some of those will come to true faith in Christ. Others of those will simply be giving lip service to him and will not receive him as the true king. Isn't that amazing? People say to me all the time, you know, if Jesus would just appear to me, I'd believe. And I tell them, no, that's not true. They will see him seated on the throne. And we'll, talk, we'll read passages next week to deal with this. So at the end of the thousand years, Satan, who has been bound, will be released. Revelation 20, verse 7 tells us. And when Satan is released, he will come back on the earth. He will regather all of those who didn't come to faith in Christ, those who are in rebellion, and there will be a final climactic battle called the Battle of Gog and Magog. Now, if you read in Ezekiel 38, 39, 40, there's, there are other Gogs and Magogs mentioned. These are generic terms to use of the nations. Don't confuse the two battles. The first Gog and Magog is part of the Battle of Armageddon. This one that you read in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, is this final climactic battle. And it's not really going to be a battle. Jesus is going to go, you're gone. You see that Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. That's what we call hell in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. You know, so many people think that Satan runs hell. You ever seen all the comic strips and he's standing there with his pitchfork? And friends, he is there in judgment. He's not running the place. He will be bound. He will be suffering eternal punishment. In, in hell. He's not running the place. Now, unfortunately, there will be others that join him there in hell. Because what the scriptures tell us in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 through 15 is that there is something called the great white throne judgment. And we're going to read this passage in a moment. In John chapter 5 that you see there in parentheses, that tells us that it is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, who is the one doing the judging. And what we're told is that the unbelievers throughout the ages, all those who have never come to faith, remember Abraham never heard the name Jesus Christ, but it said he believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith in God is what God gets him into heaven. Old Testament saints are those who place their faith in God. There are others who rejected God. It's not just a matter of knowing the name Jesus Christ. So the unbelievers throughout all the ages will be resurrected and they will come before this great white throne for judgment. And as they come before uh, Christ for judgment, 
What we're told is that every one of them, because they have rejected Jesus, will be rejected and they will end up in the lake of fire. Now I want you to notice the beast and the false prophet, these are part of the unholy trinity. You've got Satan, you've got the Antichrist, these are called the beast, the false prophet, different names. They will have been bound and sent to the lake of fire in Revelation 19.19. Satan joins them in Revelation 20.10. We're told that death and Hades... Hades is the interim place of the dead. This is not purgatory. Purgatory is not a biblical place. That is a man-made doctrine. But there is an interim place of waiting for the unbeliever. For the Christian, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, when we die to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We go immediately into the presence of God. But the unbelievers throughout the ages are waiting for a a time of judgment, which is here. So death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire And sadly, all unbelievers as well. Revelation 20, 15 says that if you go before God at the great white throne judgment, there is only one place that you will end up, and that is the lake of fire. And then what God will do at the end of this is that there will be what is called the new heavens and the new earth. You can read that in 2 Peter 3, 7, verses 10 through 13, Revelation 21, 1, Isaiah chapter 65, 17 tells us that God will take the earth and the heavens that have been corrupted by sin, they will be destroyed by fire, and God will recreate in perfection. When we go into the eternal state, there will be no sin. There will be no sign of any of the corruption. It will be completely redone and made perfect, and we go into the eternal state. Now, as we're looking at all this, I want you to remember that the reason that Jesus Christ came was to put an end to transgression and sin. The question is, when the Messiah came to be cut off, it said it was to put an end to transgression and sin, make atonement for iniquity, in Daniel 9.24. Romans 3.23 tells us, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The question for us today is, when these events happen, friends, where will you be on that day? Will you be with God in heaven? Or will you be one who goes before the great white throne judgment? Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift given by what Jesus did for us. What are you trusting in to get to God in heaven? If you think you can get there by the way you have lived your life, I want you to look at Revelation chapter 20. Turn to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. Because this is what it tells us in verses 11 through 15. It says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, this is Jesus, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books, plural, were opened. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. So it says that there is something called the Lamb's book of life. And those who are believers in Jesus Christ, their name is written in this book. And so what it's telling us is God looks in the book of life. And if your name is not in there, it means you did not receive Jesus as your Savior. So God says, I'm going to close that book. And I'm going to look in the other books, which record all the deeds we've ever done, all the good we've ever done, all the bad we've ever done. And so God is just. Everybody who's standing there that says, God, I was a good person. I did all these great things. God says, I see all that. But you know what? I also see that you were a sinner. The wages of sin is death. 
So it says, they were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That means eternal separation from God. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's only one way home to heaven, friends. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's not by being good. It's not by being here in church. It's not by having just had knowledge of who Jesus is. It is about receiving him as your personal savior. Saying, God, I know that you came to have, from heaven to earth. You took on flesh and blood and you went to the cross to put an end to sin and iniquity, to make atonement, to pay the penalty of death for my sins. And today, God, I'm turning to you. I'm turning from my sins to you and saying, I want you to be my savior. And when we receive Jesus Christ as our savior, Our name is written in the book of life. And for us, when we die, our destiny is home in heaven. And we'll talk more about what heaven will be like for us and what the Bema seat, the reward stand is for Christians next week. But what it says for us today is all you need to understand today. If all of this has confused you, you need to understand as we come to the communion table now, why we have the communion table, why we remember what Jesus Christ did for us. Because what Jesus did was he came to earth to go to the cross to pay the penalty of death for my sin and yours. The wages of sin is death, it said, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Daniel revealed that the Messiah would come to save us. That was the purpose of the prophecy. That had always been in God's plan. His great love for us. Hundreds of years before the Son of God, Jesus Christ, went to the cross to suffer. It was revealed that he would come for the purpose of saving us. And so if you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Savior. And you understand today for the first time that you need him. You need him to be the one who has paid the penalty for you. Then I invite you to turn to him today. In a moment, the elements are going to be passed. You'll see a piece of bread representing the body of Christ. You'll see a cup representing the blood of Christ. And if you take those elements, just say to God, today, Jesus, I'm receiving you. I'm turning from my sin to you to be my Savior. And the scripture says that you will be saved. For the rest of us who have received Jesus as our Savior, what he tells us is we are to come to this table with clean hands and hearts to confess our sins, to say to God, I've made some mistakes in my life, but I thank you for your gift of new life. I thank you for your forgiveness for my sins. So as the men pass the elements, I want you to take and hold these, and we'll take them together in a moment. Then will you serve us, please?
The Bible is clear that we're all sinners, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, that there is nothing that I could do or you could do to save ourselves. So God sent his son, Jesus. The Messiah would be cut off is why Jesus came, to be the sacrifice, to be the payment, to be the atonement for my sins and yours. We hold in our hand the body of Christ that was given to save you and me, eat it in remembrance of him. We have in our cup, in our hand as well, a cup, a cup representing the blood of Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sins. Blood had to be shed, and it had to be a perfect and permanent sacrifice. And that's who Jesus Christ was. John the Baptist said of him as he saw him coming, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We hold in our hand the way home to heaven, the blood of Jesus that was given to save us from our sins. Drink it in remembrance of him. Will you join me please as we close in prayer? Lord God, as we look at a passage of scripture like the one today, it can be one that can be confusing at a human level. It can be one that is hard to grasp at other levels. And yet it is one that can blow us away to show us why we can have confidence in you. To know indeed you were and are the Son of God, the one promised to come to take away my sins and others. I pray, Lord Jesus, that if there is anyone here today who is still considering whether you are the Christ, the Messiah, that today would be the day where they would come to understand that there's no way anybody could make this up. There's no way that anybody could manipulate the prophecies of the past. That there was only one who could be the Messiah, and that is you, Jesus. And so I pray, Father, that we would be those who would, who would understand that, not just with our head, but with our heart, and would come to faith in you. And for those of us, Lord, who have received you, may we go into the world and would we share the good news that the Messiah has come, that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, would we who are safe in your hand, those who already know you, would we share with others how they too can know you in the way home? We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.